Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. First five verses. I never preached the first five verses of Galatians tonight. Usually, uh, that portion, uh, we just skip over. That's just introduction, salutation, and go on to something that seemingly is more important. But uh, some weeks back, as a matter of fact, I think while I was in the hospital, in that little bit of time that I could uh, do a little study, I reread this book and looked at those five verses and there are some things in it that uh, I think we need to, to look at. It's nothing more than Paul's salutation to the Galatian church at the beginning of his letter. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, our hearts go out tonight to all those who cannot be present with us because of illness to those who are bereaved of this community because of the loss of a friend, be with that family and others who feel the pangs of grief and the loss of our families. But as we meet together, we come in your spirit, we come in the power of the Lord, we come to look at your word and pray that you would use it to bless our lives. May there something be done or said in this evening's service that would lift us up and make us be aware of the goodness of God to us and the need for us to demonstrate this same faith in the lives of people about us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You probably remember from your history books that Martin Luther broke from the Catholic Church and wrote his 95, I believe it is, theses and packed them to the Catholic Church door. From that episode began the Reformation period that brought Protestant churches into being, not just Lutherans, but all other denominations, and we really are part of that. But what you may not know is that he took that action of packing those points that he disagreed with the theology and the teaching of his church and tacked them to the door after he read the book of Galatians and found that the book of Galatians taught something that we as Baptists believe very strongly in other groups. That is, salvation comes by faith and not by works. 
The Catholic Church believes in salvation by faith. There, there are other groups who believe, are, I beg your pardon, the Catholic Church believes in salvation by works. And there are other groups who believe the same thing. There are people, even amongst Baptists, who believe that one is saved by what he does, or does not do if he is lost. The scripture does not teach that the way we believe it. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, and if you will take the time to read this and use some other translation besides uh, the King James so that it's easier to read, like the uh, uh, some of the New English versions, the Living Bible, or some of those, you will soon be able to quickly discover that the theme of the book of Galatians is that man is saved by faith. That's what he says. He's saved by faith. Well, that's not a part of the message. That's just uh, some information I thought you might like to, to note. That Martin Luther broke with the Catholic Church because of the book of Galatians. And what the book teaches. Paul begins his letter by identifying himself as an apostle. Now, people in the early history of the church, some of them, did not believe that Paul ought to be calling himself an apostle. Because the scripture has taught, and we believe, that there were 12 of them. I don't know if any of you can name the 12, and I'm not going to try it, because I'm not sure I can either, but you remember that one of them committed suicide. Being Judas, and that left them 11. In the upper room, while the apostles and the rest of the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit at the command of the Lord to wait there, 120 people altogether, 11 apostles and the rest disciples. Peter stood in the midst and said, we ought to replace Judas. We ought to select somebody from our group to be the 12th apostle. Evidently the Lord wanted 12, and so he selected uh, 12, and now we're short one. And I'm adding a little bit into what Paul said because we don't have all of that recorded in the book of Acts, but you will find his speech there to the group about this selection. And so they all agreed that they would find one in their midst that would replace Judas. There was a requirement that Peter thought ought to be upon the man selected. And that is that he must have been with the total group from the baptism through to the ascension. Now sometimes we think that Jesus only had 12 people around him in his three years of ministry. But we discover that there were at least 120 that he had gathered together, as we find that number in the upper room. But out of that 120, he had selected 12 of them for a special purpose and called them apostles. And they had been with him from the time of their selection all the way through until the ascension of Christ. And so that became the condition for the selection of the new person. And so they finally narrowed it down to two men, Justice and Matthias. These two men then were equally qualified and both could... Uh, could have been the twelfth apostle, according to the group. But in order to select him, they, uh, they cast lots. They drew straws. 
They uh, flipped a penny. They uh, drew out a white stone in play or a black stone. They did something like that to make the selection. They prayed that God would be in it. I don't know if God was in it or not. There is nothing in the scripture that says God approved or disapproved of that process. There is one fact, though, that maybe you haven't thought of, and I haven't given too much thought to it. Matthias was selected, and we never hear another word about him all the way through the scripture. That was all we know. He was selected. Zip. That's it. Some people think that it may very well have been that this was not God's plan to select Matthias, for he had already prepared the twelfth apostle, and his name was Paul, or originally Saul, and he selected him on the road to Damascus and spent three years with him in Arabia teaching him therefore giving him the same teaching in that three-year period that the apostles had gotten in their three-year period. And Paul talks about this throughout his writings, that God selected him, he met Jesus, he had a a first-hand knowledge of him beginning on the road to Damascus in three years of training. So Paul claims himself to be an apostle and makes no excuses for using the word. So, you want to call him the 12th one or the 13th one, I suppose it really makes no difference. But he claims that he is an apostle, and he says he is an apostle not because men have selected me or because I decided to be selected. You notice those two statements there in verse 1? Not of men, neither by men. Men didn't do this. No council got together and said, we're going to select Paul to be one of the 12. Nobody did that. He claims apostleship. He holds that all the way through his writings. He claims the Damascus road was the beginning of it. The Lord appeared to him and he spent three years in Arabia there in training. Now, not by men, not self-appointed. I use this to make this point that God selects people for his work, not man. God calls preachers, not men. God calls people to the mission field, not men. But listen, God calls you to your particular task in the work of the kingdom as well. The problem is most people don't hear their call. But probably are a few people in the pulpit that didn't get called either. They were put there by men or they were self-appointed. I have a lot of problem with self-appointed preachers. And we have them starting churches all over the land. They, maybe God sent them there to do it, and I can't, I can't uh, criticize, I suppose, too much or object. But we must be sure that God has called our, our ministers and our missionaries and other people. But we also must, be, must recognize and be sure that God calls the congregation. And God calls people in that congregation to specific purposes. The problem is, do we hear? The gathering demoniac that Jesus brought sanity back to, and uh, the guy who hid in the, in the cemetery and came out and fell down before Jesus and cried to him, 
when Jesus set foot in Gadara, uh, to lead him alone. It was the devil in him that was calling all of us out. And Jesus commanded the devil to come out of him. And, the, and there were many of them, demons, that came out and went into that herd of swine. And the man was sane. And the man offered to go with Jesus, but Jesus gave his commission to that man. You go back home, and you tell the people at home what good things the Lord has done for you. Now, there's our first call. And I think this is a call that goes to everybody. Every Christian should be going and telling people what good thing the Lord has done. Now, that's the witness that the church must have. We, as Christian people, don't have to preach sermons. We don't have to sing in the choir. We don't have to play the piano. We don't have to teach a Sunday school class to be a minister of the, uh, of the gospel. We simply are commissioned to go and tell people what happened to us. Now, the Lord will do the convicting. The Lord will win people to himself. All he asks us to do is just say what he did for us. Now, the problem comes that oftentimes we are so unsure and uncertain of ourselves that, that we cannot really say what the Lord did for us. Maybe we're not close enough to the Lord to feel like that we can talk about him. Some people are embarrassed to talk about the Lord. I've seen that in faces many times. And I, I can think just, uh, just last week when talking to one person in this community, that individual is extremely embarrassed that I was trying to talk to him about the Lord. We ought not to be embarrassed, but we ought to be capable of divulging not some great theological theme out of the Bible, but simply being able to say, look, I don't know all that's in here, but there's one thing I do know. I know the Lord saved my soul, and I know I'm going to heaven. And I know some of those things, and divulging that is the call that we have been given. Don't wait for some big outlandish sign in the sky that says, hey, you're supposed to go do something. Well, I suppose some of, or maybe all of you know, but in the, uh, in the ordination of a preacher, there is an examination council. If you've never been to one of them, you ought to go sometime. When a, when a person determines that he has been called to preach and the church gives him a license, and somewhere down the road, the uh, churches in the association will gather together and the deacons and the pastors will sit on a council and put the guy on the spot and they have the right to ask him about his call and his faith and his, uh, when he was saved and his baptism and why he believes that he was called and all this stuff and uh, interrogate him. Well, this fellow was being interrogated and one of the, the preachers asked him uh, about his call and he said, well, I was out plowing corn in my field. And I, I was leaning, I stopped the horse and was leaning up against the plow and I was looking up in the sky and I saw a great big PC up there in the sky and he said, right then I knew that the Lord was telling me to preach Christ. Well, one wise deacon in the group said, maybe he was telling you to plow corn. Now, don't wait for some fantastic uh, sign in the sky that tells you to do something, you might be misinterpreting it. But go with what we know in our heart. 
and let the Lord lead. And I think that's what the Lord was talking about to his disciples to a great degree when he told them not to worry about what they were going to say. But the Lord would lead them in those times. I think we need to plan, and I think for a preacher to get in the pulpit and not plan is ridiculous. Well, some who try that, but I'm saying, as we go out in the Lord to talk to people about Jesus Christ, don't be over-anxious with a lot of theology. Uh, just be yourself and tell people what the Lord means to you. And that will have tremendous weight in convicting people of their sins and bring them to Christ. All right. Now, his, his message then is to the church at Galatia. And down in verse 3, uh, he begins by saying, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Galatian church didn't realize it, I know. But they were the recipient of the gospel. They just thought they were getting a letter from a preacher. And that letter turned out to be not just a letter from a man, that turned out to be a message from God. Today, we still read it, not as a letter that Paul wrote to Galatia, but as a message from God to all people and to us. This is God's word, not man's. I'm not particularly trying to ride the Catholic Church tonight, but uh, there is another point I want to make. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, believes that the church is the author of this book. And that's why they say the Pope uh, and his decrees are superior to anything. If the Pope says it, it's superior to the Bible in the Catholic Church. We don't believe that. First of all, we don't believe that there is the need of anybody called the Pope and so on. But the point is, no man, no man, is superior to the word that God has given. Paul did not, although he penned it, Paul was not the author of the book to Galatia. God was the author. This is what God was saying. But it has been preserved, and it's a message that you and I need as well. The Bible is the, is the message to the church, not from man. The Bible is the message to the church from God. And when we read it, we ought to think in terms of this is God's word, this is God speaking to me. And when we do, we're going to have some tremendous truths that will jump off the page at us. I'm sure you, like I, have read many passages of Scripture that didn't mean anything. Just as I have read the first five verses of this chapter, Time and time and time again, didn't mean anything. I hurry up and get over that to get to what Paul was really saying. To discover that Paul had something very important here to say. It wasn't Paul talking at all. It was God talking. And God was now speaking to my heart from a very remote piece of, of uh, Scripture. God will speak to our hearts to allow him. I don't know how much time you spend with the Bible, but we need to spend time with the Bible reading it and rereading it and, and praying over it and asking God to tell us what is he saying? What do you want me to understand? What is the truth that is there? And when that happens, we're going to find some exciting things in God's Word. Sometimes 
the church is looked upon as a dull, drab something. And one of our congregations spoke that to me not too awful long ago, that uh, it, it appeared to be dull and, and drab. But I am saying to you that in the scripture there is excitement. Now, the first excitement that I can see in verse 3, he uses the word grace. Grace is the source of salvation. It establishes our position. It begins what Paul is saying to the church. We are saved by the grace of God. That's all. That's how we're saved. Not by what I might or might not do, but by what God has done. If we are saved by our works, Jesus Christ died on the cross absolutely needlessly. If I can be saved but what I can do, then I don't need Christ. And he went to that cross for no purpose at all. That was a wasted life. God wasted all of that effort. God wasted his son because I don't need him. If I can be saved by what I can do. And we need to understand that. But our salvation is by what God did. All we did was simply yield. Say, yes, I want it. Now, Romans 3.20, Paul again makes a very good point. When he said, it is not by deeds of law, not by deeds of law shall any man be justified. Not by deeds. Not by any legal requirements. Will any man be justified? But in your daily life, on the job, whether you're in the coal mine or the school system or in government or whatever you might be doing, the housewife at home, on the phone with your neighbors, you're going to discover people who believe that they're saved by their good morality. Okay. Then he says peace. Peace is the practical benefit of grace. This is knowing that things are okay between me and God. It's that calmness that comes over a person when he knows that he's saved. Take, for example, a person who is caught, let's say, in a coal mine. And people are digging to him. The anxiety of that trapped miner must be tremendous. But when there is the breakthrough and he hears a voice that's saying, we're here, there has to come a calmness over him when he knows that he's rescued. Man must feel that anxiety of going toward eternity and knowing that unless somebody rescues him, he's going to hell. And the breakthrough comes 
when Jesus Christ digs through and says, I'm here to save you. And a calm must surely come over a soul. That's, that's the feeling that we as Christians have. We don't have to live in anxiety. We bring anxiety upon ourselves. Who's in control of your life? I remember years ago hearing a preacher by the name of Brown. He's dead now, I'm sure, because he was an old man at the time. He was the out in my life, the outstanding person of prayer. He taught people to pray. A bunch of us preachers came together in a camp one time to learn how to pray. That seems odd that we'd have to be taught how to pray. But we went for that purpose. This man taught me something that I have never forgotten. He said something like this, and I can almost remember his words. I can see him well. He said, I don't own a single thing. Not a single thing, and I don't want to. Everything belongs to Jesus. It's his. Therefore, I don't have to worry about it. He said to illustrate, in the house I live in, my furnace, the furnace, not his, the furnace, blew up. And it was going to cost $500 to fix it. He just simply said, Lord, it's your furnace. What do you want to do about it? Do you want me to spend $500 to fix it? Or do you want to do it some other way? He said, it didn't bother me one bit because it didn't belong to me. He used that to illustrate. If we would consider our lives as not being ours, our lives belong to Jesus. Now, what he wants in our life is all that should matter. If he wants us to live in absolute poverty, as Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content, then we ought to be happy in poverty. If he wants us to be a millionaire, we ought to be happy in our wealth. If he wants us to have a job, we should be happy in it. If he wants us to do whatever, it's his life, not our life, that we're talking about. Now that's difficult to come to that point of turning ourselves over to the Lord. But when we do it, we have the peace that he's talking about here. It really makes no difference if I live or die. I faced that when I was in the hospital. I came to this reality. And I said to the Lord, it really doesn't make any difference. That's the first time I'd ever been able to say that. Because my life is in your hands. You do whatever you want. That's what peace is. When we're so completely in the hand of God, it really makes no difference what happens to us. How could Paul go to jail, sit there with, in that jail with the shackles around his feet and handcuffs on his hands, and he and Silas and others sing the hymns of the church? How? Because he had peace. It made no difference what he was doing. If God wanted him to sit in jail, that's what he would do. That's the way Peter was. And the church was praying for Peter that Peter would get out of jail. 
And the Lord heard the prayer of the church. And the shackles dropped off and the gates opened up and an angel took Peter out of jail and put him outside. And what did Peter do? He went down to the church and the doors were locked because the people inside were praying for his release, but at the same time they were afraid they were going to get arrested. And she knocked at the door and a little girl came to the door and her eyes got big because there stood Peter. She slammed the door closed. And then told the people, Peter's standing outside. And everybody's gone oh, now. What are you talking? He's in jail. Peter was in the hands of God, but here was the church who ought to have been in the very same hands of God and who could have believed that their prayer was going to be answered because they belonged to God, not because they had any power of their own. So it's not by our works that we're saved or that we live. We are saved by the grace of God and we're in the hands of God. If we could just live that way. I think salvation is exciting. I think it produces something. It, produ it ought to produce joy in our lives. Sometimes we as Christian people go around with long faces. And we... we give a false impression as to what Christianity is all about. Frankly, I'm surprised that very many people in the community want to have any part of the church if they are looking at our long faces and saying, let's go to church so we can be sad. We ought to be drawing people because we are people that are happy and full of excitement. Some people like to live thrilling lives. At least some of our young, more of our young people were here tonight because I really wanted to talk to them a little bit about launching out into the deep a little. Steve, you like to be a, live an exciting life, I know. I can tell that so you know, I was over at their house today. He's, he's an you know, exciting fella. Uh, he likes to take chances and all these things. I mean, anybody that would go out fishing with Bill Miller's got to be one an exciting life. Now, this is the way we want to live. Exciting. Why does anybody get on a Ferris wheel except to feel the excitement? After we get off, we wish we hadn't gotten on there, but for the time, it's exciting. This is the kind of thrill that we ought to have as a Christian. Now the only way we're going to have that excitement is to get on the Ferris wheel of the Lord. It's to launch out into the deep waters and get lost in the middle of the night on a boat. Which I did, Howard, one time. I thought I never would make it back from a fishing trip. And I was only 50 feet from shore but couldn't find it. That was exciting for a while. That's the kind of life that we ought to live as Christian people. And our faith in God ought to put us in the midst of things. And we go out there and, and live for the Lord. We ought to be thrill seekers for God. I'm not saying we ought to be an amusement park. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we ought to put ourselves out there to get all there is out of our Christian life. 
to enjoy it to the hilt. Well, look at verse 4. And I've already commented on it, but I want to read it. Who gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for our sins. And if we can be saved some other way, then that was wasted. That he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Be glory forever. That's the whole purpose of living. I think there's four stages to salvation. Number one, God has decreed, I will save all people who will come to me. Two, Jesus Christ died on the cross to accomplish what God said. Three, the Bible, the apostles, the book, says all of this. And fourthly, salvation is a gift from God to the believer. Let me put it another way. God said it. Jesus did it. The apostles in the scripture teach it. And I believe it. And I hope you do too. It's exciting to be a Christian. We ought to be saying, Sister Lafey, praise the Lord more than we are. We ought to be proclaiming, Hallelujah for the cross. We ought to be singing, Glory be to the Father. And I'm quoting little phrases from hymns. We ought to be saying, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We ought to be singing, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Hallelujah for the cross. And on and on we could go. Because we are in an exciting business. Made possible by God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.